Father, once again, we come together to hear your voice. As we study scripture, we ask, Holy Spirit, will you teach us? Will you speak deep within each and every one of us? Lord, we even commit our minds to you so that you can break mindsets and help us, Lord, to be uh, correctly positioned and postured, Lord, for all that you have given to us and have for us. So we ask that you'll be with me and be with everyone listening in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We continue our journey through the book of Matthew. Matthew is made up of five main discourses. The first one we've gone through, last week we started on number two, and I like to look at number two discourse as talking about kingdom assignments. Last teaching, we talked about Team Jesus, how Jesus put together his team, and how he chose the twelve. Four things. Quickly, let's go through it. Number one, we want to be aligned with Jesus. And the first thing is that we want to be with Jesus. We have to know the King. It's about relationship. Secondly, as we are with Him, we are authorized by Jesus. Authority flows out of relationship. Point number three last week was about appointed by Jesus. Now, we know that He appointed 12, but you and I are convinced that it's not only the 12, although the very first 12 was significant. After that, they were assigned for Jesus. And the point I was trying to make to you is that appointments come with assignments. All right, Don't seek for an appointment without knowing what the assignment is. That would be a terrible thing. This week, the title is As You Go. And as you look at this, please don't think that these are closing notes. You know, like As You Go by... No, these are actually important notes that as you start to move out on kingdom assignments, these are instructions that you need to take note of. We've already established that there are kingdom assignments that need to be carried out in what we call areas of operation. Jesus told the first 12, don't go into Gentile territory, don't go into anywhere else, but go and speak to the people of Israel. Talk to the kingdom people first. You are limited in your area of operation. Make sure you know where you're supposed to be going so that you can carry out your assignments correctly. Now, usually when we look at a passage like that, we would automatically apply it to, say, missions, right? Because we are supposed to be sent out, we are supposed to go into a different culture, a different country. I'm going to challenge you that we're going to draw principles tonight from this passage, that you don't close your mind. Don't be so narrow to think that it is only for missions or about church ministries, Areas of operation would be places wherever the Lord sends you, where He puts you, where your assignments are to be carried out in. Those are what we call AOs or areas of operation. So as you move, as you go, as you get into these areas, as you want to carry out your kingdom assignments, these are the things that you want to take note of. So let's read Matthew chapter 10, verse 7 to 15. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, 
let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Once again, I appeal to you, don't just think that it is a mission-based thing. We'll draw principles. Also, at the same time, let's take note that these instructions were given specifically to the original 12. Things may have changed across time, right? Cultures would have changed, uh, situations would have changed. So we want to draw principles from this entire passage that we can then apply it across as many situations as possible. The first point I want you to note is the kingdom message. Verse 7 says, As you go, preach. As you go, declare. As you go, publicly announce, proclaim. As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom ambassadors, when we are sent out, we represent the king. And the first thing we do is that we represent him to declare his kingdom. The very first task that we must be mindful of is that we are here to announce the kingdom. The kingdom is here. The king has come. And we're telling people, we're inviting everyone, would you accept his rule and his reign? First point, the kingdom message. As you go, preach. And you'll realize that in all our assignments, there is a message we communicate. The question is, what are you communicating? Either through your words or through your actions or the way you behave, how do you communicate? What do you communicate? Jesus says to the 12 here, tell the people, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if this phrase looks familiar to you, that's because we have read it before in the book of Matthew. The very first time we saw it was when John the Baptist came onto the scene and he declared the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's John the Baptist. Who's the other person? Jesus. The moment he started his public ministry, the first recorded words in the book of Matthew, exactly the same phrase. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as this message is declared, and if you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, and the two other instances that I have raised to you or highlighted to you, the phrase is the same, but in verse 7 of chapter 10, one word is missing. What is that word? That one word is repent. John the Baptist opens by saying, repent. Why must you repent? Because the kingdom is here. Jesus says the same thing. Repent because the kingdom is here. So I think you and I can safely conclude that the disciples will have heard it often enough that when they are told to go declare the word of the kingdom and the message of the kingdom, repentance is still very relevant. We are trying to go out there and tell people, look friends, the king is here, the kingdom is here. Will you turn from whichever direction you are headed? Will you turn and will you return? Come back to this king. The invitation is for them to get into this kingdom put it very practically, very simply and very clearly, stop living as if you are the king. The real king is here. Will you turn? Will you return? Come back to his ways. Stop living your own ways. Come back to this king and come into his kingdom. 
Stop serving other kings. Stop serving other kingdoms. And if you want to be really specific, stop serving sin as your master. That's New Testament, right? In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul actually says this, that the power of sin is broken over you. You don't have to serve this king or this master anymore. Now you serve a new master. And so when we talk about repentance, it's really change the way you're looking at things, change the way you understand things, and not only the way you understand, but change your behavior, change the way you talk, because now there's a new king that we're asking you to submit to. And so first thing, friends, if you're getting onto a kingdom assignment, your assignment will always carry a kingdom message. may not be these words, but my point is, are we declaring it? Are you demonstrating it? Are you communicating this? And are you telling people, look, will you turn? Will you change your ways? Will you come to Jesus? Let me give you a, a side point down here. I know the word repentance is not very popular these days. Whenever we talk repentance, some people will tell you, oh, it's no longer relevant. That's Old Testament. Huh? Everything is all fire brimstone. Huh? Repent, repent, repent. Very condemning. In the New Testament, Jesus, when He spoke this, that was before the cross. After the cross, you don't have to mention this word repentance anymore. Let me challenge you. You really need to read your New Testament properly. Is it still relevant? And I tell you, yes, it is. We still need to turn and we still need to return. In the book of Acts, and I'll just give you this one example. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter leader of the pack, of Team Jesus, right? He's already been sent out. He's already got his little experience going out declaring the kingdom. Day of Pentecost, which we just celebrated a couple of days earlier. Holy Spirit falls upon him and he preaches an awesome sermon. And right at the end, when the people ask him, what shall we do? When they were cut to their heart, this is what Peter said to them. Repent. First word. He tells them, turn from whatever you're thinking of and doing and whatever you believe before. Just repent. Turn, because the kingdom is here and we're showing this to you. And so I believe it's relevant. The message of the kingdom remains the same. Nothing has changed. We are still inviting people to turn and to return to Jesus. Why is this point important? Why am I standing on this point for so long? I believe that everything that we do, everything that is displayed through our lives, everything that we communicate must take place in the context of the kingdom of God. If not, we miss the big picture all over again. And once we understand that context, then whatever we do or whatever we say, we either represent or we misrepresent the king and his kingdom. Let it sink in for a little while. Sometimes we think, oh, we just say anything also can now, you know, because, you know, God's going to make it all good. I mean, that's His sovereignty. But we all have a responsibility. Is that true? We can either represent or we can misrepresent the King and His kingdom. And an important point, especially these days, we don't get to declare our own message. We don't get to declare a message we prefer to declare. Now, as a preacher, a teacher, and a speaker, I love it when people love the message that I preach. But that's not the point, 
Right? As much as I would love people to come pat me on the back and say, wow, that was an awesome sermon, you know. That was really good, you know. Wow, it so stirred me, it so encouraged me. That's not the main point. The point is, did I preach what I'm supposed to preach? Did I represent my king correctly or not? My responsibility is to preach the word. That's what Paul reminded Timothy. You go and you preach the word. Not any old word. It's the word of the kingdom. Nothing has changed. My responsibility is to stay true to the word, whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, whether anyone likes it or not. And we have to remember this. Otherwise, we will compromise and misrepresent our king. Just this week, there's gone by. A royal wedding has taken place. And you know this couple, that's Prince Harry, and his newly wedded wife, uh, Meghan Markle. And the whole internet, the whole world is gaga over this couple at this point in time. But there was one person that almost, I think, stole a part of that show. He is the preacher. His name is Bishop Michael Curry. Apparently, he preached a rather stirring message. I watched the YouTube And perhaps in English-type culture, they would not have preached this way, but because this is American and uh, from a black culture, wow, he was really passionate. And he, he almost stole the entire show from the royal couple. So he preaches about love, the power of love. He says, love is not only about young couple. Now the power of love is demonstrated by the fact that we're all here. Two young people fell in love and we all showed up. But it's not just for and about a young couple who we rejoice with. It's more than that. Now, at a glance, if you listen to this, you might have been caught up with the romantic uh, flavor of what he was actually trying to say. But I thank God that there are very sharp Christians who are listening to this kind of a message that's being preached at such a huge event. I mean, you have 15 minutes and millions around the world are watching you preach a message. Bill Mullenberg from Culture Watch has this to say, and I would encourage you to get onto his website and read two or three articles that he has already written about this on Michael Curry and the power of love. Bill writes, To say God is love is the easiest thing in the world to say. Everyone likes to say it and hear it, even non-Christians. But to make it clear what exactly that means from a biblical point of view is a far different matter. To divorce is love from the full biblical message, including the fact that we are all sinners heading to a lost eternity unless we turn to Christ, is to give us a false picture of who God is. Now, you've got to understand the context. If you have not listened to this message, go listen to it. He talks about Jesus, mentions that He died for us, talks about God, talks about love, but never once mentions sin at all. Okay? Of course, Bill writes other things. He says, You will be praised by everyone if you tell us all we need is love. They loved it when the Beatles told us that. But if you want to be biblical and tell us that the love of God is a very specific and demanding thing, and faith and repentance and turning from sin are keys to getting access to God and His love, then people will get quite upset with you. Thus, a discerning Christian listener would have known that something may have been amiss here. They would have seen that an emphasis on love, as good as that can be, without a corresponding emphasis on who God is in His righteousness, 
holiness and purity will give us a skewed image of God. And you can look at the internet now. I'm sure there are many of your friends, Christians, who are gaga over this posting and saying how great a message it was because all we need is love. This other person called Gavin Ashenden, he writes about the Anglican Church. So he writes it right from where the action was taking place. And he titles this, Michael Curry and the Royal Wedding, A Starting Offers the World Christianity Light. And so I pulled out a paragraph here. Christianity light can be very appealing. It reaches out to where people are hurting and it encourages them. Nothing wrong with that. It reaches out to where they are longing for good change and it promises them that change can come. It speaks continuously of love and hope. Everyone likes to hear of love and hope. But it has three serious flaws. It doesn't define love. It never delivers on the hope. And it isn't what Jesus preached. See, you need discernment to be able to pick this out. Because today, many pulpits are just declaring love, love, and love. It's not entirely wrong. My question is, is it accurate? Is it the full message? He goes on and he says, Yes, Bishop Curry, as St. John wrote, God is love. But unlike you, St. John defines love and shows us that it is a longing and meeting of longing that travels the way of the cross, the way of renunciation. But if you want to be popular, don't invite the people to renunciation. And Bishop Curry didn't, but Jesus did. The third article it comes from Christian Today. And this is written by David Robertson. The Royal Wedding, how it distorted the gospel for the whole world. You've got to read this one, it's good. He says, my first difficulty is that everyone loved it. It was so postmodern that everyone could take their own meaning from it. Atheist, agnostic, or Christian, it didn't matter. You could take that sermon, all you need is love, and quote it in support of your own views. He says, it was not the gospel. John speaks a great deal about sin, the danger of false teachers, antichrist. That love for God is not some amorphous feeling, but is rather seen in obeying His commands and the fact that the world hates Christ and His teaching. Bishop Curry ignored all of that and spoke as though the Bible was just saying, all you need to do is love one another and live lives of love so that we will live in nirvana. He didn't mention that we can't do this without Christ. The gospel is not that we need to follow Christ as the most perfect example of love. It's rather that we need forgiveness for our sins and that we cannot love without Christ. If he dared to say what John says, I suspect the reaction to his message would have been somewhat different. I don't know if this surprises some of you, because some of you maybe would have felt that it was a good message and it was nice and it was encouraging and it was befitting a situation and occasion. I mean, after all, why be so hard on this guy? I mean, it's two young people getting married, they're in love with each other. Aren't we being a little bit too harsh? Oh, is it so bad if it's wrongly presented? Maybe he didn't mean it. I mean, God can always take something bad and turn it to good, right? And even all these writers also said, it's okay, you know, fine. I mean, at, at the end, God is sovereign. I mean, if God can use a donkey, I mean, you can use anyone. 
But why keep looking for donkeys for God to use? Don't we have a responsibility to preach the word without compromise? My question as you look at this and ponder this is that was it a kingdom agenda? Was it a kingdom message? Or was it a different agenda? Now, if you know Bishop Michael Curry, he is the Bishop of the Episcopal Church of US. And this group was suspended by the Worldwide Anglican Communion. Why? Because they are pro-homosexual, pro-LGBT, pro-same-sex marriage. That is their agenda. So Bill Mullenberg provides this understanding. Curry is a pro-homosexual activist and a theological liberal who was invited by the couple to offer his spin on things. It does not matter in the least that he did not mention gay this or gay that. By offering a watered-down and unbiblical understanding of love, he did all he needed to do. Now, if you think I'm going a little bit too far, it's already been reported that Harry and Meghan stand up for LGBT rights. And immediately after their wedding, when they have taken a little bit of a break, they are going back to champion this cause as ambassadors for the Commonwealth nations. Friends, do we have a kingdom message? And if we do, we must be responsible to declare it correctly. And my concern is today, we don't even know what the message is, and that's why we can't represent the king well. And all someone needs to say is, just use the word love. Huh? And then we all get mushy about it. Huh? We, we get so, yeah, yeah, as long as it's love. There's nothing wrong with love. Love fulfills the law. But it has to be biblical love. It cannot be some made-up love or mushy love or Beatles kind love or postmodern love. It cannot be that. It has to be a kingdom understanding of what this love is all about. And so I share these two verses here with you in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Normally, we will read verse 2 and we say, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. But I think we've got to remember what verse 1 says. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge, He will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Now against this warning, preach the word. Do you understand the context? You don't say anything you want to say, whatever you want to say, whatever gets you a bigger audience, you know, and more pats on the back or more likes on Facebook or more listenership on SoundCloud. I mean, you've got to preach the word in light of the fact that Jesus will come back and He will hold us accountable. We are kingdom ambassadors and representatives. If you want to be on kingdom assignment, you better know what the kingdom message is. And we will share it without compromise, but we will share it with love. We will share it with grace. Now, as you do that, as you go, and as you declare, and as you preach, and as you proclaim, there are kingdom paradigms that will follow, that will support. You will see characteristics of the kingdom as you declare the message of the kingdom. And so, for the rest of this message, I will share some of these paradigms before we close, finally, with some reactions to the kingdom message. The first one is power and authority. Definitely a kingdom paradigm. When you get out there and you move on kingdom assignment, you will have kingdom power and you move on kingdom authority. 
the next verse says, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out the demons. The preaching of the word is accompanied by signs. This is consistent. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15 onwards to the end, Jesus says, go preach the gospel. And later he says, these signs will follow those who believe in my name. And in my name, they will do this and they will do that. Preach the word and then demonstrate it. Signs will follow. Well, it's not necessary that it has to be this order. For sometimes, it can be signs can come first. But after that, when the signs are there, my question is, do you preach the word? Right? You cannot just do one and leave it hanging. Because do you know that in other religions, they also cast out demons, they also claim to heal the sick. So which kingdom are you representing? So the order need not be preached the word and then heal the sick or show the signs. You can display and demonstrate the signs, but I appeal to you, please preach the word after that. They go hand in hand. The signs will affirm the authorization of the king because the kingdom has power over disease, over death, over demons. The kingdom and the king has full authority over both the physical realm as well as the spiritual realm. But you and I have gone through the teaching in chapter 9. I've belabored that point over and over again. It's not just about physical healing or physical deliverance. The physical deliverance points to something that's much greater. It's a spiritual salvation. So don't just be satisfied with someone who is healed. Be thrilled, be excited, but you've got to declare the kingdom. If this person doesn't make a decision to turn and to return to the one who has healed him, our job is not done yet. It's a greater, greater commission than just a physical healing. It's a spiritual salvation. And we've got to bring people to the Lord. The deliverance over all these things is to point to a greater deliverance over sin. This is the message of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, when, when the angel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus. Why? Because he will come and save his people from what? From their sins. And Jesus came to break the enemy's hold over people through what? Through sin. Sin is the only thing that the enemy has a hold over us. If Jesus demonstrates that, and He does, then sin has no longer any power. Now you have to decide, do I come to this King? And if we understand salvation into the kingdom, it points to then the rule and the reign of the King. Because if the power of sin is broken, then we no longer serve this Master. We serve a new King. What does that lead to? Transform lives. Transform lives will then lead to kingdom assignments for the king. You see, it comes back to the same thing over and over again. But have we lost the plot somewhere along the way? <laughs> have we lost the focus somewhere along the way? And sometimes in trying to recover something, we go to an extreme, we miss again the full picture of what the gospel and what the kingdom is all about. So the first thing, as you get out there on assignment with the kingdom message, understand you have the power of the king. You are authorized by Jesus himself. The second kingdom paradigm is this. It's about grace. Freely you have received. Freely give. See, the entry into the kingdom is a free gift. You can't work for this. It's entirely by grace. 
And I believe Jesus is saying this to His disciples. In the same way that they have received, they are now to offer it to other people that it will be by grace. You cannot charge for this. You can't demand anything out of anything else. Our tendency is to think that we deserve the gift, but not others. When we want the gift, we say it's grace. But when we have to try to extend it to someone else, uh, we always think, but I'm not so bad like them, what? They're actually worse than me, what? And we miss, again, the message of grace. We think that our sins are not as great as someone else. We think we should get it free, but they should pay or they should work harder to earn it. But the kingdom is meant to be received first and then to be given. Do you get that order? This order you cannot change, huh? The kingdom experience has to be received first, and then it must be given. You cannot give something you do not have. If you have not experienced something that is positive from the Lord, then you can't give that same thing out. By that same token, it also holds true that if you have received something that has not been positive, if your experience of the kingdom or of church or of Christianity or of religion has been a dead one of legalism, of condemnation, then that's the same thing you will give to other people. And so the Lord Jesus is saying this to all of us. It is freely you have received. It is by grace. You must keep remembering that. Never for once think that you have earned something from the Lord, especially where the kingdom experience is concerned. Freely you have received, and freely you must give. If you have received by grace, you must give it by grace. If you have received love in the correct way, then you will love in the correct way. If you have experienced the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus within the constraints and the confines of the law of the Spirit, then you will also teach people how to have the same freedom, but still obeying the Word of God. But if you have received and you are not giving, then the sad truth is this, then you have received something in vain. Paul says this a lot, right? If you have received grace, then let, it, let not this grace be received in vain. And this is where the principle of what I call the to me for you principle, this is something that I hold on and I have to remind myself over and over again. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul writes it this way to say, You have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. And I love these four words. The grace of God was given to Paul, but it was not for Paul. It was for you, for someone else. And I will challenge you, what if something is given to you, but it's not for you? You get to experience it, but it's given to you, but actually it's for someone else. In other words, you steward it. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. If you begin to understand this, it's the same principle. Freely you have received, now freely you must give. Everything that you enjoy is by the grace of God. Everything that you have is by His love and by His grace. Freely you have received this. It's not for you. It's for the benefit of someone else. If the kingdom of God, if the people know how to understand this, I think we will be less selfish. We won't hold things and grab it. We will release it and we will give it. See, this is the kingdom. And it's a kingdom paradigm that we have to learn over and over again. 
The third paradigm is a paradigm of provision. Matthew chapter 10, verse 9. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a worker is worthy of his food. A worker is worthy, deserving of his food. Now, don't get this worthiness here wrong with the unworthiness that causes us to experience the grace of God. You follow me, right? A worker is worthy, meaning to say that God sees you of value to look after you to make sure that you will get your food. Now, this is an Old Testament understanding. It's an Old Testament phrasing and principle. The Old Testament teaches just and timely payment of workers. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Old Testament principle. It's in the law. It's rooted there. God is fair. If you work, He will provide. He will pay. Okay? We've got a really good boss. Amen. Deuteronomy 24.15 Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. Old Testament principle again. You hire someone, make sure you pay on time. Don't withhold. Otherwise, this is sin against you. We know a worker needs food to work, so he will get what he needs so that the work can be done. God knows. If you are a kingdom worker, if you are on kingdom assignment, he knows you will need food. He knows how much you can last. Some of us can last a little bit longer than others. Some need a little bit more. Whatever the case may be, the Lord knows that we will need to eat and we will need provision so that the work can be done. And so I want to encourage you. I want to assure you. I want to say this to the glory of God. Our King knows how to look after His workers. And you've got to really be assured of this. One of our biggest challenges of getting to kingdom assignment is we are scared that God will not provide. We are so worried. We think we must have this, 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 and that, that, that first before we enter into the ministry of the Lord. And I'm telling you, you have a wrong kingdom paradigm. It's a wrong understanding. You need to know if you are a servant of God, and we all are, a master, by the law, is duty-bound to pay his worker well and to pay his worker on time. And I say this so many times. If you are a single and you get married in a household of this master, the master is duty-bound to look after you and your wife. Praise the Lord. Now, if you and your wife have seven children, <laughs> the master is duty-bound to look after you and your household as long as you live in his household. You see that? I don't know how else to say this. Your, your master, your king, knows how to look after you. You've got to be so convinced about that. Our king is a good king. And at the very least, at the very, 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 very least, this verse promises you, you will be adequately fed. Right? It doesn't say that you're going to get big kang or big house. Not that you can't have it. A worker is worthy of his food. And later Paul then uses this and says, it is worthy of 
wages, right? Because you need money to buy food. But today, when we look at wages, we think, wow, you know, 13, 14, 15 month bonus, variable this and all that. Paul uses the same principles. He quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Even the ox, while he's treading out, you know, let him eat the food. Don't go and close his mouth and then he can see the food walking as he walks around and going around the mill. And then, wow, very, very uh, uh, sadistic, right? Right? I show you the buffet, I show you this, uh, but you're on kingdom assignment, I cannot eat. <laughs> Our king is not like that one. Huh? There will be enough for us. I hope you are convinced. Yeah? Paul says, no, look, you can expect this. This is an Old Testament principle. It is the law of God. He tells the church in Corinth, it is our right. We have sown spiritual things for you, Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? So Paul was not shy about it. He says, I I teach spiritual things. I won't be shy if you bless me with material things. It's my right. A worker is worthy of his wages. To the elders, he writes to Timothy, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honour. Wow, doubly worthy. And from this word honour, we get honorarium. Wow, so as I get to be more elderly, I should get double honorarium when I go and preach. <laughs> and sometimes people are so worried to give honorariums of a certain amount because they think, oh dear, you know, if the honorarium too big, uh, then they work for money. And so I always joke with people, you know, love offering means how much you love me. <laughs> An honorarium shows how much will review how much you honor me. Okay, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I know this is recorded, yeah. But there are cautions. There are cautions. This is not to be abused. So as quickly as Paul said, this is my right, as I bring a kingdom message, he asks, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. It's my right, but I'm willing to waive that right. See, this is a kingdom principle, you see. It's my right, but I don't enforce it. If I enforce it, it becomes a contract now. Then it takes everything out of, you know, whatever we're trying to do, right? It just doesn't sound nice. It doesn't feel good anymore. So Paul was willing to waive that right. Secondly, he says, it's not to be a means of gain. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. There are some who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Wow. And I think we must pay heed to some of these things, right? Especially when we are talking more and more about the prosperity gospel, how we justify, you know, how God will always prosper His people. And especially if you are a speaker who needs to look prosperous so that you can preach more about the prosperity gospel, you're going down a very, very dangerous path. You don't know where you're going to stop. I know many of you would have seen this show, The Greatest Showman. And this is the very talented Hugh Jackman. Of course, he plays this character called P.T. Barnum, who was famous for the circus trade and the shows. In case you want to know what P.T. Barnum looks like, he does not look anything like Hugh Jackman. So there was a time when P.T. Barnum, when he was running this great Barnum and Bailey circus, he invited 
Charles Spurgeon of London to speak in a large tent at his travelling circus. He made every concession to make the offer attractive to Spurgeon. Barnum would provide the musical talent, think worship team, unless Spurgeon wished to provide his own. He would provide any equipment, think smoke machine and LED screens, or manpower Spurgeon desired. Spurgeon could speak as long or as short as he wished. There was only one basic stipulation. Barnum Circus Association would take the gate receipts and pay Spurgeon $1,000 per lecture. This was a generous offer in Spurgeon's day. Many would doubtless have said, what a wonderful opportunity to reach people with the gospel. But not Spurgeon. Knowing it would be wrong to join hands with the world, he sent a reply to Mr. Barnum. Dear Mr. Barnum, thank you for your kind invitation to lecture in your circus tents in America. You will find my answer in Acts chapter 13, verse 10. Yours sincerely, Charles Spurgeon. If Mr. Barnum looked up Acts chapter 13, verse 10, he would find these words in the King James Version in those days. O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? That was his answer. There was another source that quoted the same story, but actually quoted a different verse. It was Acts chapter 8, verse 20. Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. In any case, I don't know which one is the more accurate. Both were directed at sorcerers. Paul at Elimas and Peter at Simon the Sorcerer. These days, I think it's very common practice for speakers to state a fee, a speaking fee. I'm talking about Christian speakers. Maybe they're so sought after that if you're really serious that you want this speaker, you must be prepared to pay for him. I'm not at that level, Okay. So I don't understand. I, I, let me just say it this way. I don't understand. But I know as I speak in camps, there are times when people will ask, what's the rate? How do we compensate you? you know? Because they, they just want to make sure that they don't under or over or whatever. And I just said, I don't know how to set rate. What do I give you? Market rate or what? <laughs> right, huh? And then I know you might be looking for ministry rate or what. So to me, it's like I said, lah, you know, love offering or honorarium, lah, how much you love me and how much you honor me. And I, I don't know how. And if you are in the speaking circuit, you understand that sometimes people are generous, churches are, and sometimes they are a little bit more conservative, and that's okay. Because in the end, they are not our paymaster. God is our paymaster. And where there's a shortfall, my God knows how to make up for it. And this is something we need to understand. If you always only look at the money, friends, you will not get out on kingdom assignment. So the main point I'm trying to share here with you is, I want you to know the kingdom paradigm. It's about provision. It's not about prosperity. It's not about poverty. You know, sometimes you look at this one verse, maybe it was very specific to the time of the 12 disciples. Uh, don't take money, don't take even money back, nothing at all. Leave your wallet behind. And we think, oh, there must be poverty. Today, you know, we suddenly have this discovery to say, oh, it's all about prosperity. 
I don't think it's either extremes. I believe in provision. So if you understand provision, then you can understand both having enough or having more or having less. Paul says so simply, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And on this point of provision, let me give you just three small points of dependence, of simplicity, and of urgency. See, the idea of provision is that we learn dependence and trust. And there are three points here. Take this down quickly. Number one, dependence on others. Now, that may surprise you, but do you know the kingdom is about community? And sometimes God would allow us to depend on someone to help us. God can provide. He can drop money from the sky. He can drop food somewhere else. But many times, He provides through His people. So it's a lesson for you to learn, and it's a lesson for the person the Lord has placed in the heart to provide, also to learn. Okay? So we have to learn how to depend on one another so that we can serve with one another and we serve alongside each other. In those days, they have to learn how to be hospitable and also to be generous. But their opportunity to be hospitable and generous is also an indication of their receptivity to the king's ambassadors and the kingdom's message. And as people open up either their houses or their wallets and they support us in the work of the ministry or they sow into a work that you might be doing, let us remember we are not to take advantage of other people. Secondly, you can depend on yourself in that you work, your own trade. You can hold a job or you are your own business person, you run your own company. There's nothing wrong with working to support yourself. Paul was a tent maker. He told the church in Corinth, I did not give you trouble, right? I did not pressure you. I preached the gospel and I also carried out my trade. I earned money, I have my own clients and I continued to preach. So please don't think if you are a business person or you are a well-earning person, a, a good earner, that that is less spiritual than someone who has given up the job. Like for myself, I've given up the business to go into the work of ministry, to invert the commas, live by faith. There's nothing wrong with you earning your keep, right? Nothing wrong with earning, holding on to a job. It is no less spiritual and it's not any less of faith. But it will be if your trust is always in your salary and your money. There are people also who today, many business people, professionals, they adopt this model. They then can pay for themselves. They go out to minister or they support other people to minister in different countries in the Senate. So you are doing great kingdom work, right? You are part of a kingdom assignment. And you may not go out there yourself or you go out there yourself, but whatever the case may be, um, we now need business people to get into countries. Missionaries are having more and more trouble uh, getting where they should be going. Okay? So whether is it on others or yourself that you're depending on, ultimately, of course, we know that the dependence is on God. Okay? Don't be beholden to someone else as you appreciate them and are thankful. 
always thank God, trust Him for provision, trust Him for protection, right? Jesus says, don't carry a staff around, the staff is ready for protection. Now, this does not mean that you don't buy travel insurance, okay? It's okay to buy travel insurance, nothing wrong with that. But the point is, you are trusting God to protect you. Whatever happens, happens. You trust God and you depend on Him for power, not on your titles, not on your positions, not on anything else. The other point about provision is simplicity and frugality. The items that were listed by Jesus, they were not always prohibited because He mentions it in another list later in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 to 38. And He says the same items, now you can take. It's okay to bring these along. So it's not that He was inconsistent. It's just maybe for a certain uh, mission, for a certain need, you, you don't really need that and you will need this now. So it's okay. So the point is this, be simple, live simply, bring what you need, even in your own life, live within your means. Learn how to adapt, learn how to accept whatever the conditions might be. And I know as Singaporeans, we have to learn much, much faster. We are so comfortable in our own home country. If you do go on missions, which is a good thing, we will learn new things out there. Okay? But already in Singapore, learn how to adapt, learn how to accept. But the principle here, remember... Live simply, channel your resources for the purposes of the kingdom. One other point under provision is to understand the urgency, and with that, it's mobility. I believe Jesus might be saying, travel light. You know, don't carry all your, um, what's that, the Hermes uh, Birkin handbags? <laughs> don't carry all those huge luggages and stack, you know, and you need porters to help you carry it. Travel you know, stay unhindered, be responsive. You don't know how God's going to move you and all that. The Holy Spirit can change cause for you anytime, all right? And so these points about provision, dependence, simplicity, and urgency. Let's close with this. As you declare a kingdom message, you can expect a reaction. And Jesus gives this possibility and eventuality of both a positive as well as a negative reaction. He says, Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. When you go into a household, greet it. Now if you are getting into missions, you are going to, wanting to conquer new ground for the kingdom. Here the question is, before you can reach the city, the principle is this. You start with the households. If you want to change Singapore, you better start with the household. You want to be the Antioch of Asia, start with the Archippus. But be prepared because uh, people may or may not take to the message. Not everyone wants to know about the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, be willing to work through those who are willing to work with you. Don't waste your time. Doesn't mean that we don't care about people and don't want to save people. My point is, if you're on assignment... Work with people who are willing to work with you. So the positive reaction could be the household receives you, people receive you, churches receive you, the city receives you, the person receives you. And if that happens, the first thing you do, you declare a kingdom promise. You declare peace, shalom. You notice every government has a campaign promise, right? Every election, whatever it might be. Good government, bad government, I don't care. There will always be a campaign promise. Jesus' campaign promise is shalom, peace. 
if you will recognize me as king, if you will accept me and receive me as king, this is my campaign promise. The kingdom will come, the king will rule, you will have shalom. Everything will be restored. And so as you come under the rule and the reign of this king, you receive a peace that surpasses understanding. This does not mean that you have no more storms and no more challenges and no more problems. But the king will walk with you. The king will be there with you. The prince of peace himself will guarantee that he will be there to take you through all that. This declaration of peace is not just for the short term. This declaration of peace is also for the long term. It's an eschatological hope of shalom. It's not reliance that, oh, I hope President Trump and Kim will come together in Singapore, eat laksa, try durian, and then sign a nice peace treaty at the peace summit at Peace Center. That is not the hope. Huh? If you're placing your hope on that, it's short term. If they sign it, okay. Huh? But you don't even know what's going to happen after that, right? It's an eternal, long-term eschatological hope of shalom. When Jesus finally returns for His kingdom, shalom. That's the promise. But the opposite can also happen. You can have rejection. And that's when the good news becomes bad news. When you don't accept a good news, the good news becomes good news for those who accept it, but actually becomes bad news for those who reject it. So, Jesus told the disciples, when you depart from that house of a city, shake off the dust from your feet. Shake it off. Now, that's a Jewish phrase. What this means is that the Jews were so violently opposed to anything of the Gentiles, even the smallest particles of dust, if they go into Gentile territory, and the Gentile dust should get caught in their cloaks or their garments, the first thing they will do after that is they will shake off the dust. They don't want anything Gentile to be upon them. That's how serious it is. Now remember, to the disciples, the area of operation was the people of the kingdom. It was Israel. You don't go into a Gentile land. And this is how serious Jesus saying, is saying is this. If the people of the kingdom can't even accept me as their king, they will be treated as Gentiles. This is serious stuff, my friends. This is from Jesus, the one full of grace and full of truth. You see, if you don't accept the good news, the good news becomes the bad news. But is this just about salvation alone? You see, many times we read this passage and say, oh no, but we believe Jesus already, you know, so how can I be considered like a Gentile? You know, you don't have to shake the dust. I've already received the good news. My friend, maybe you only receive the good news of salvation, but you miss the good news of the kingdom. Because in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 12, unfaithful servants, and these are the words of Jesus, unfaithful servants, people of the kingdom, they are to be treated finally as unbelievers and apportioned with the hypocrites. I'm pausing for effect. Did you get that? These are people of the kingdom. You, you understand? They are supposed to have already been in the kingdom, understand the kingdom, but they are not serving the king. And that's why here, here's my advertisement. Please listen to me when I declare the message of our keepers awakening. Because we don't want to be unfaithful servants. We want to be faithful servants. You see, it's not just about salvation at that point. It's about being ruled and reigned by the king. That's the good news of the kingdom. 
And we are still missing that, man, we are in church and Christianity 101. We have not moved. And there will be a degree of judgment. These people who reject that, reject the king and everything that the kingdom stands for, they are considered worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. To the Jews at that point in time, the Pharisees and the priests and all were always referring to Sodom and Gomorrah as if like it is the worst thing that can ever happen of judgment. And now it says, hello, I'm the king. Jesus says, and if you mess with my messengers, you mess with me. You reject my message, you are worse than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because grace is shown over and over again. And if you reject it, there's no more second chance. And my point is that we must be responsible to present both the good and the bad news. We have to do this. And when the good news is rejected, it becomes really bad news. Again, Jesus mentions many times the sons of the kingdom being cast out and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I know those are those verses you will never underline in your Bible. You will never quote one because you think it doesn't apply to us at all. But you've got to read the words of Jesus carefully. But what's my problem? My problem is that I'm too afraid to warn people of the impending judgment sometimes. I'm too worried, you see, because I want to be liked. I, I, I don't want to lose friends. I don't want to be rejected. I prefer to be nice. And every time I, I stay true to the message of the kingdom and to preach the gospels as they are presented, I've been accused of being too hard and too harsh when I preach. But if you look at social media these days, everything is love and favor. There's no judgment at all. No worries, you see. So my question is, are we really representing the king and his kingdom? Of course, not every message has to be judgment-based. But are we balanced? Are we correct as Jesus would have us preach? Because again, the truth is when we do preach judgment, people will be offended. And as if rejection is not bad enough, retaliation is even worse. And that is why Jesus would give warnings in the next verses and the next passage. So join us next time when we come back to learn more from Jesus. And so as you go, remember again, kingdom assignments carry a kingdom message. And I challenge you, I charge you, be bold to declare it. But don't forget the kingdom paradigms. There will be power, it must be given by grace, and there will be provision, so you don't worry. Our King will look after all of us. But I must also warn you, as I also remind myself, be prepared for reactions to this kingdom message. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God, a good God, Lord. Lord Jesus, you are a good King. And Lord, you love us and you look after us. And you are faithful always to provide for your servants. Lord, may we never forget that if we are to be sent out by you, then we will be watched over by you too. We will be provided by yourself also. And so I pray, Lord, that you will teach us and show us the kingdom message. May we know it well ourselves so that we can share it accurately with others. Not to beat people down, not to tear them down, but to really share with them what the good news really is. Because, Lord Jesus, there's nothing better than to serve you, than to love you, because you are a good king. And so as we go, as we leave this place, may we carry these instructions with us and may we be reminded so that we can serve you faithfully and properly. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.